0: The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written between the 9th and the 12th centuries, is a truly brilliant piece of historical writing. Without it, virtually nothing would be known about vast swathes of English history during the early Middle Ages. However, as with nearly all historical documents from the Middle Ages, it is, above all else, a piece of political writing. In this case, written by the House of Wessex, just one of the seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that once held sway in Britain, specifically under the patronage of Alfred the Great and his successors, in order to justify their own actions and legitimise their position and reputation as the unifiers of England just as much as to record the actual events that happened. As such, quite tragically, vast swathes of Mercian history, the other major Anglo-Saxon player of the time, and traditionally the strongest of the kingdoms before the coming of the Danes, are simply left out, or massively downplayed in preference to the deeds of Wessex. from the rump state, or puppet, of the Danes that the western portion of Mercia has often been portrayed as, after it was split into two by the warriors of the Great Heathen Army in the 860s, and before its full absorption into Wessex in 918, Mercia remained a major player on the scene, at times still controlling vast swathes of Wales, and doing just as much, if not more, than the West Saxons in reconquering the eastern portion of Britain from the Vikings, who had held sway there between the 860s and the late 910s. One figure in particular, who is heinously underrepresented in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is Mercia's last great ruler... A throwback to the days of the Mercian supremacy of old, under the great kings Pender and Offa. This was a ruthless, pious and energetic leader, whose ceaseless campaigning into the five boroughs, ultimately brought not only them under Mercia's heel, but also came within a stone's throw of subjugating the kingdom of Jorvik years before its final conquest by the next West Saxon king, Athelstan. Quite astonishingly, she was also a woman. Aethelfled, the daughter of Alfred the Great, husband to the last Lord of the Mercians, Ethelred, and one of the greatest, though tragically unsung, Anglo-Saxon rulers in history. Yet it isn't just Ethelfled that is left out of much of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. Many of her greatest deeds being relegated to simplified entries, such as fortifying a burr or endowing a church just as her younger brother Edward's campaigns are intricately detailed. The Viking war leaders that she spent her entire career fighting against are also, more often than not, simply left out. Thankfully, there are other sources from this period that we can glean vital information from. The Welsh and the Irish both kept chronicles of their own, and they paint a very different picture of the West Saxon-Mercian power dynamic and Aethelflaed's rule. Most importantly, they aren't anywhere near as worried about legacy as the West Saxons were, quite unashamedly referring to Aethelflaed as Queen of the Saxons, and singing of her deeds over those of her younger brother Edward. One such event that they relate in rich detail, is one simply referred to in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as Ethel fled, fortifying the town of Chester. According to the fragmentary Irish Chronicles however, what happened at Chester would very likely have taken up entire pages in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, had it been achieved by West Saxons, rather than a Mercian ruler. Aethelflaed's husband, Ethelred, the lord of the Mercians, stalwart servant of Alfred for decades, from a prominent Mercian family, was very ill for much of the later years of his life. He was also probably quite old by the 10th century, having been in charge of Mercia since at least 878, and likely a prominent warlord before that time. When Ethel fled went to Chester in 907, she went alone, yet she went with all of the authority to act as a queen, in all but name. The old Roman town of Chester was indeed re-fortified, with significant repairs made to the walls and defences. The reason being that a massive Viking force, comprising of men from all corners of Britain and Ireland, were in the process of besieging it. And they weren't alone either, according to the Irish Annals, having with them large contingents of Irishmen from across the sea. Which is perhaps why the incident made it into the Irish Chronicles in such detail. The ruler of these Vikings was a man who, again, if it had been the West Saxons that he was fighting against, would probably have made it into the Chronicle as one of the major adversaries of the period. He was a ruthless warlord, a possible member of the Uyamere dynasty that had been ousted from their port city of Dublin in 902, and one of the scourges of the Irish Sea during this time. His name was Ingemunda and quite audaciously, despite being able to forge one of the largest Viking armies of the era, he was virtually written out of history by the West Saxons. Ingermunder's origins, before arriving in Britain at least, are relatively well known, him being one of the Viking exiles from Dublin in 902, after the port city was reconquered by a coalition of Irish kings under the overlordship of High King Flancinna. In the immediate aftermath of that expulsion, coastlines from Francia to the Orkneys saw a massive increase in Viking activity as the various groups of outcasts searched for new homes, usually behind the tip of a sword. Ingamund's group ...seemed to have been one of the largest... ...and may have been comprised of some of the nobility of Dublin... ...which in itself... ...had always been the strongest of the Viking longforts of Ireland. Initially, they made landfall in the northern Welsh kingdom of Gwynedd... ...nominally subject to Wessex and Mercia at the time... ...after an earlier alliance with Alfred the Great of Wessex. Gwynedd's king, however was Anarod ap Rodri. A strong and powerful ruler. Like Edward and Ethel fled, and unfortunately for Ingemunda, he was the son of a famed Viking fighter, Rodri the Great, one of the most celebrated kings in Welsh history. Faced with potential catastrophe at Anarod's hands, and needing above all else to retain his fighting men intact for the hard times to come, Ingemunda left Wales, and took his ships just to the north. It was there, on the banks of the River Mersey, the ancient border between Mercia and Northumbria, that he seems to have sought refuge with Ethelfled and Ethelred of Mercia. Astonishingly, refuge seems to have been granted, on the proviso that these Irish Vikings, mostly Norwegian in origin, would defend the area and act as a buffer zone against the Vikings of Jorvik, many of whom were the Danish descendants of the Great Heathen Army that had ravaged England in the 860s and 870s. This settlement of Vikings in modern-day Lancashire and the Wirral Peninsula, on Mercia's northern frontier, may have been conducted in a similar arrangement to that which was shortly to be concluded in Francia, between Rollo, the founder of Normandy, and Charles the Simple. Yet, due to the sheer lack of sources, and the unwillingness of the West Saxon chronicle to accurately depict the deeds of Mercians during this time, it might have remained just that, a story, had it not been for an astonishing discovery made in May 1840, The discovery was one that not only corroborates the story of Ingemunda's settlement, but also lends much weight to the suggestion that Ingemunda's army was one of the largest Viking forces of the age. On the 15th of May 1840, on the southern bank of a bend of the River Ribble, In an area called Coordale, near Preston in Lancashire, one of the largest Viking silver hoards ever discovered was found by a local farmer. Comprising of more than 8,600 items, including large quantities of hack silver and coins from as far away as Baghdad and Central Asia. In weight, and in number of items, it is second only to the Spillings Hoard, found on Gotland in Sweden, which was buried much earlier during the mid-9th century. In short, the Kuadale Hoard represents one of the greatest archaeological finds in British history. Luckily for us, the origins of the coins, buried at some time between 903 and 910, exactly the time when Ingemunda is said to have made his settlement, are quite literally written on them. Tellingly, by far the largest portion are from the Danelaw and the Kingdom of Jorvik. Which at the time, might have been Ingemunda's major enemies, if the Irish annals' tale of a brief Mercian-Norse alliance are to be believed. The other largest portion are from Wessex. Others come from as far away as Constantinople, Scandinavia, the Middle East, Italy, Rome and Francia, suggesting the wide reach of Irish Vikings at this time. The Coordale Horde hints at a rich group of warriors, perhaps numbering individuals who had themselves made the arduous journey to the Middle East and the Mediterranean to raid and to trade, before returning to Britain to settle. During this period, Lancashire's Ribble Valley was an important Viking roadway between the Irish Sea Jorvik, both for trading and for raiding. The presence of large numbers of newly minted Norse coins from Jorvik, as well as large amounts of Irish Norse bullion, has led a number of experts to believe that the hoard may have been a war chest belonging to Irish Norse exiles intending to reoccupy Dublin from the Ribble estuary. There remains an abundance of place name evidence on the Wirral Peninsula, northwest of Chester, to corroborate this, attesting to a significant Scandinavian colony in the region. Indeed, it has long been thought that the expulsion of the Vikings from Dublin in 902 appears to have resulted in large scale Scandinavian immigration into the Wirral, on Anglesey, on Man, along the coasts of Cumbria, and northern Wales. There is even evidence of the alleged Irishman amongst Ingermunders warriors, with the name Irby, meaning Farm of the Irish, being found on the Wirral. If the fragmentary annals of Ireland are to be believed, then within a few short years, the Mercians' plans of making use of such a settlement as a buffer zone may have backfired spectacularly, as lo and behold, After he had built up his strength once more, Ingermundr decided to go his own way. Not just turning against the Mercians, but bringing large contingents of Vikings from the Danelaw on side in a great coalition to wage war against his one-time benefactors. By 907, Ingermundr, along with a vast army of Danes, Norsemen and Irishmen, from all corners of Britain and Ireland, marched upon Chester to test out the metal of Ethelfled and the Mercians. Whilst it remains difficult to ascertain exactly what happened at the ensuing battle for Chester, it was certainly more substantial than a simple fortifying of the town. The Irish sources go so far to describe a lengthy series of engagements, including a large part of Ingermunder's army being drawn into the town, and the gates then closed behind them, whilst the Mercian defenders hurled down stones, rocks, burning mead, and even beehives down upon the attackers, killing them all in agony, before making a deal with Ingermunder's Irish allies, in order to turn them against him, and finally killing most of his army. Though this in itself may very well be an exaggeration, it remains highly likely that a hard-fought victory was won at Chester in 907. A victory that may have led, in part, to Aethelflaed gaining the full respect of her various thanes as the de facto ruler of Mercia in the aftermath of Ethelred's death, allowing her to campaign extensively against the five boroughs for the next 11 years, until her death in 918. Ingermunda simply drops off the map after this point, though many of his followers probably remained in the area, now under the control of Mercia. It is possible that he is one of the Viking Lords who was slain three years later, at the Battle of Wodensfield, also known as Teton Hall, in 910. As some scholars identify him with the Agmund hold who died there, along with much of the leadership of Jorvik after a botched invasion of Mercia. Tettenhall was the last attempt by the Danish Vikings of Northumbria to reassert their once all-powerful stance in the north and east of Britain. After that day, their once mighty army shattered by the thanes of Mercia and Wessex, the descendants of the great heathen army could do little but watch, as one by one, the towns and countryside of the five boroughs were annexed into the ever-growing kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons. Though Ingemunda disappears from the record after this point, over the coming decades, his kinsmen from Dublin, another branch of the Ouya would seize the opportunity to cross the sea and claim Yorvik for themselves, ushering in the next battle for supremacy in Britain. Unfortunately for Ingemunda, he and his invasions have become largely obscured by history, as have much of the deeds of Ethelfled, a ruler deserving of the same praise heaped on her father Alfred and her nephew Athelstan, for their part in the making of England.